The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Good. Great to be here. We have uh, multiple, multiple topics on the agenda for tonight. Father, uh, maybe just to give our, our viewers a short little sampling, we have... Uh, Questions concerning Bishop Sheen and Bella Dodd. Um, we have an interesting article um, about some new psychological research uh, that one of our viewers sent us. Had a question about My Catholic Faith, uh, the, the book that we've mentioned recently. Um, also a question uh, concerning uh, Francis and uh, some uh, recent items that have been in the news concerning his uh, his stance on Samorum Pontificum, um, among other things, Father. So. Uh, we could begin with a, a very uh, interesting topic that I know we've just briefly touched on in the past, but something that uh, has continually come up, and I know our, our viewers have a lot of interest in this topic, uh, Father, and this is uh, concerning Bella Dodd and some of the, the testimony that, that she gave um, concerning communism and uh, some of the infiltration, the communist infiltration into the Catholic Church. But one of our viewers uh, specifically, he referenced that... Um, Dr. Dodd, she, she revealed to Bishop Sheen in the 1950s that there were, to her knowledge, uh, four, he says, four highly placed cardinals in the Catholic Church that were communist agents. Uh, she also, she, uh, Bella Dodd says that she personally placed 1,100 communist agents into the Catholic seminaries during the 1930s. Uh, but the viewer says that, unfortunately, Bishop Sheen counseled her against making this fact public. Um, any comments on that, Father? Why would Bishop Sheen... Uh, effectively silence Bella Dodd in this regard. He did not. Really? Okay. Yeah, that's a misconception. Really? He did not. Yeah. He simply told her that she should not publicly name, name them, that she should not publicize, publicize names. Okay. But he didn't silence her. Uh, in fact, she spoke very freely. And uh, there's no record whatsoever that I know of, or ever heard of, that Bishop Sheen uh, told her not to speak of communist infiltration or attempted infiltration in the Catholic Church. Uh, Belladad did say that there were four cardinals um, who uh, were, I don't, I don't know if she exactly said, she might well have said that they were agents of, uh, you know, Stalin uh, in the Catholic Church at the time. Um, but uh, Bishop Sheen would not allow her to name who they were. Uh, this should come as no surprise. Well, I guess it would not come as a surprise to know that Bishop Sheen had told her to be silent and not publicly name them. Um, to have a private citizen uh, just like, go on public record and start naming communist cardinals uh, would be rather sensationalistic, to say the least, and start all kinds of uh, unnecessary controversies. Um, what is not said here is 
whether or not he advised her to go to their superior <laughs> to take the, the information to Rome. And that is what I assumed Bishop Sheen would have done. Uh, I don't know that he did that. Um, I don't know of, of any record of that having been done. But um, if, uh, you know, just on the surface of it, if, if I had been in Bishop Sheen's place, and I'm not, obviously, and I had uh, uh, someone return to the Catholic Church who had been a member of the Communist Party of the USA and a member of the New York City Teachers Union, which was a big communist uh, organization back then, um, and was very active in, in the communist cause in America and was revealing this, had a lot of information to reveal, I would not have told her, well, you know, uh, get on the radio and start, you know, broadcasting throughout the world the names of communists in the hierarchy. Now, that would have been very imprudent. I would have said, look, this information has to go through channels in the church. And it has to go to the authorities who can take care of this matter. Um, otherwise, it would be like basically just uh, igniting a, a bomb in the mm -hmm. church, you know. So, uh, in any case, um, you know, Tom, we, we've known the church has been subject to infiltration anyway. When, when Bella Dodd testified before the House Committee on American Activities <clears throat> that she was aware of 1,100 um, young men who'd been placed in seminaries for the sake of infiltrating clergy. Uh, she knew what she was talking about. She was well-placed, and uh, I, I believe that she knew what she was talking about. Now, whether um, she was talking about card-carrying Bolshevik communists, uh, people who carried Stalin's picture in their pocket and uh, and all the rest, and, and, and read Das Kapital, I don't know. I, I don't know that she ever said that, you know. But uh, the fact is that we know the church has been targeted for infiltration by the Freemasons from the early 1800s. Um, we know of the document, which has come to be called the Permanent Instruction of the Alta Bendita, um, which was captured in the Masonic lodges of northern Italy, uh, by Austrian troops under Franz Josef, and um, which was published um, at the order of Pope Pius, Pope Pius IX himself ordered that document published to warn the Catholic world, uh, to warn the Catholic people that the Masons were intending to uh, uh, to infiltrate the clergy, and um, especially targeting the clergy because they wanted to work their way through the clergy to gain control of the offices of authority in the church, okay? Um, they, this plan was mapped out by a man who, who's known to Guerre. His, uh, his code name was Nubius. He was the leader of the 40, the Council of 40 of the Alta Vendita, the, the directing lodges of Italian Freemasonry, the Carbonari. Uh, so this is very well known. In fact, one can find even on... Uh, uh, the, the internet, although I discourage people from spending much time there. But one can find the actually uh, the original document in Italian, 18, 1800s Italian, which is interesting to read, but it's on there. One can actually read the, uh, the um, text of the original document um, and compare it with the modern translations, which are quite accurate. But uh, in the document, uh, it wasn't called by the Masons the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita. It wasn't called by Nubius, who penned it by that title. But Popeyes, the, uh, the ninth 
um, had it published by probably the most famous Catholic historian at the time, uh, a man named, uh, a Jesuit priest named Father Cretino Jolie. Um, and these very serious scholars. Um, and so this was made known back in the, you know, mid to late 1800s, not quite too late 1800s, of course, because Pope Pius IX had died uh, at the end, by the end of that century, and Leo XIII took over for him. But in any case, um, it was uh, quite controversial. And um, Monsignor George Dillon, in his series of lectures in Dublin, in the late 1800s, 1890, 93, somewhere around there, actually referenced this and gave the text of it in English. Um, every traditional Catholic today and, and conservative Catholic, anybody who still has the faith, should be fully aware of this document and have read it through at least once and understand what the plan was by the Masons. So, you know, when we read about the intrusion of the, uh, the modernists into the church, uh, as we read in Pascendi, the encyclical by St. Pius X in 1907, we're realizing that the plan of infiltration had been going on for about a hundred years. Um, and so here we have a pope who, uh, roughly a hundred years after the, the plan of subversion had been uh, put on the table, uh, the Masonic tables of their lodges, uh, a pope saying that the church has these modernists who are within her heart and in the very veins of the church. Um, and uh, 10 years later, in 1917, Our Lady appears and says that uh, Russia would spread her errors throughout the world. Well, we see a real parallel between the ideas of Karl Marx and the ideas of the modernists. Uh, the modernist ideas actually are, are very closely parallel to the Marxist ideas about history, the progress of history, and, and um, you know, uh, they both, as St. Pius X said about modernism, they, they lead to, to atheism. And uh, even Marx, you know, warned Engels, we don't have to insist that everybody who joins the Communist Party is an atheist when he starts, but he will be by the time he finishes. And um, so both of these things inevitably in the minds of their crafters lead to atheism. So uh, it's just that modernism was a, you might say, a flavor of Marxism that was specifically designed to take down the church. I mean, there was Marxism in the world that would uh, flood the world, as Our Lady said in Fatima, and there was modernism that would specifically address the church and try to take down the church. And the modernists would, would specifically take down the church because they knew the Catholic Church was their one enemy who would withstand them. Uh, something that, uh, a thought that was echoed by the cultural Marxists back in the 30s in the Frankfurt School, who said that um, the world did not fall to communism as Marx had predicted after the revolution in Russia because of the Christian culture of Western nations because of Catholicism. And so they, um, they undertook uh, to basically subvert uh, Christian countries, uh, Catholic countries, and destroy what was left of Christian culture there. So that it would be, uh, create a world ripe for communism. So that the, um, the power of the Catholic Church and her faith could not 
uh, as it were, arm the world against communism. It would strip the world of, uh, strip the church of it, the armor of its faith, right? And all of its armaments. And uh, so that's what we saw happen at Vatican II. That's what surfaced at Vatican II. A basic, uh, basically a surrender to the world. Uh, nothing could be more emblematic of that surrender to the world than the controversy at Vatican II over whether or not atheistic communism would be condemned by the um, council and its document, Gaudium et Spes, the Church in the Modern World. The attempt of 450 bishops uh, to uh, demand the uh, specific condemnation of atheistic communism, um, the, uh, the, the fact that, that that petition simply was put in a drawer and locked away by some Monsignor Gloria, some functionary who took it upon himself to say, no, we're not going to do this. <clears throat> and all of the excuses that were given um, by the council fathers and all the rest, their committees about what happened to this. Finally, uh, there is a footnote that uh, condemns atheistic communism. One footnote in one document. That was the concession that was given. I mean, that's, that's so, um, as I say, so it just speaks volumes. It tells you what this council was, where it was coming from or where it was going. So all of this, uh, by the way, by the way, while all of this was being debated, um, communists in the Eastern Bloc were, were actually trumpeting the fact, they said, that they had communist agents in every one of the committees of Vatican II. Wow. And uh, Cardinal, ba uh, actually Archbishop Baron from Yugoslavia, at the time Yugoslavia, actually made that note. He said that's the word he was getting from his native country communist country, that the communists were openly boasting that they had succeeded in getting communist agents and every, every uh, committee at the council, bar none, and uh, that's very telling. So again, I mean, the idea that the communists, uh, the Masons, the Marxists, and I mean, they're all of the same uh, stripe, right, um, had designs on infiltrating the church is not, not surprising. Um, at all. We know this has happened, and um, Bella Dodd was born in 1904, um, and um, died in 1969, I believe. Uh, by that time, she'd been out of the Communist Party for 20 years. She'd been expelled, and but left willingly. She'd been expelled because she had rejected it. And she saw through the uh, the bad disguise of the communists, that they were not really compassionate champions of the working man at all, quite the contrary. Mm -hmm. uh, they were just uh, bloodthirsty revolutionaries. And um, um, Natalie White, actually, Natalie White, who was Bishop Mendes's personal secretary for the last 18 years of his life, but who had known him for much longer. He was, she was one of his converts. Um, uh, Natalie knew uh, Belladad personally. And uh, Natalie was also a woman of letters, and uh, I think that intellectually they probably were kindred spirits. So, um, you know, I feel a certain affinity there. Mm -hmm. But in any case, um, I don't think there's any evidence that Bishop Sheen tried to silence Bella Dodd from talking about communist infiltration of the church, but there seems to be sufficient evidence to show that he told her not to name names, mm -hmm. basically. So. Yeah.
Father, one of the things I found most interesting... Uh, not, not publicly, is what I mean, not to the world. Right, right. Broadcast. Um, you, you know, you, you uh, in drawing this parallel between uh, Marxism and Freemasonry and, and modernism, I found it very interesting in Belladad's talk. She, uh, she mentions this idea of the, uh, the card-carrying communist and says mm -hmm. that she herself, you know, technically what might, might not have been a, a card-carrying communist and some of the, these agents that she talks about might not ha have fit this description. And she says mm -hmm. that, was, uh, that, that was intended because mm -hmm. um, they could, you know, honestly say, no, I'm not a member of mm -hmm. the Communist Party. Um, and this seems to be very much in line with what the, the Freemasons did, right, exactly. uh, how, how they didn't want a pope that was, you know, technically a Freemason, but that thought like a, like a Freemason. And mm -hmm. I, I think she, uh, she, she uses the expression, something to the effect that if it, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it, it mm -hmm. is a duck. Um, so regardless if there are these, these, oh, sure. I mean, these, these card carrying They were walking, walking around with uh, Communist Party memberships in their, in their, in their wallets, anything like that, of course. And they wouldn't even want to be registered anywhere because, uh, I mean, if it could be found out through uh, intelligence that this or that person was, uh, you know, actually enrolled as a Communist Party member, a Bolshevik, had been involved in Communist Party youth activities and so on, yeah. that would have blown their cover. It would have ruined everything. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, Tom, I wouldn't be a bit surprised, but that um, Belladad might have, one of the names she might have been keeping secret might have been Giovanni Battista Mantini. Because we're talking about, what, the 1950s yeah, era that she was talking about this? And um, during the 1940s, it came through diplomatic channels to the knowledge of uh, Pope Pius XII that one of his, um, one of his subordinates, uh, the, like the pro-secretary of state, like Assistant Secretary of State, was actually involved in secret communications with Moscow, with the communists in Moscow. And it was Montini. Montini was uh, like an Assistant Secretary of State. And here he was actually involved in clandestine, uh, I don't know if you'd call them negotiations, but communications with Moscow. It was found to be true. Uh, Papias XII discovered this only through uh, the, um, uh, a certain a diplomat who warned him that, that their intelligence, the nation, nation's intelligence had come across this. And uh, I heard stories about uh, the church trying to send clergymen, Catholic clergymen, into Russia for the Catholics, for the benefit of the Catholics there, and how time and time again they were apprehended almost immediately, if not immediately. And so they were waiting for them. So they, they anticipated their coming and knew exactly who to look for. That was highly suspicious. It might well have been, and I think there's certain evidence to make it more than a rash suspicion to think that this Montini was a mole. And you know what? Papias XII basically kicked him upstairs. I mean, that's how they put people on ice on the church. They, they put them in a position where they, they think that they can't do too much damage. Well, hard to imagine, but uh, Pius XII made him the Archbishop of Milano. Milan, great city of northern Italy, uh, rather leftist, perhaps, um, in its politics, even at the time. Didn't make him a cardinal, though. That was very telling that uh, Pius XII made him Archbishop of Milan, but did not give him a cardinal's heart. And you know, uh, 
When Pius XII died, they elected John XXIII, and one of the first things John XXIII did was put a cardinal's hat on Montini. It's one of the first things he did. He, he named Montini a cardinal and positioned him to become the next pope. Paul VI, the one who brought in the, one who closed the council. He presided over the last three sessions of the four-session council. He's the one who supposedly said to Jean Guiton that as he was about there on, on December 8th, 1965, to promulgate the work of Vatican II, that he was about to sound the trumpets of the apocalypse, right? And uh, he's the man who brought in the new mass. He's the man who brought in all the new sacraments. And the 15 years that he was the supreme pontiff of the, of the Novus Ordo of his own making, um, there was such a radical transformation that one would not recognize the Catholic Church after he was done with it. And so this is what we saw happening in a very rapid progression, Pius XII, John Twenty-Third, and Paul VI. Right? Mm. So anyway, uh, as I said, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the names that Belladad was uh, had in mind in the Vatican, uh, there are other candidates, but Montini might well have been, of course he was not a cardinal, was he? She mentioned four cardinals, that's interesting. Yeah. So, but he was not a cardinal at the time, but I wouldn't be surprised that she was aware of him. Yeah, well... <clears throat> okay. Uh, well, Father, I'm sure there's a lot more that can be said on that topic, uh, but I, I wanted to get into some of these other things that we had. Um, we had a great uh, a great link sent to us by uh, one of our faithful viewers um, from this courthousenewsservice.com, and uh, <clears throat> apparently it's, it's titled, Psychologists Map Out Underlying Traits to Identify Violent Extremists. And uh, just a, a few uh, little quotes from this article. Uh, they say that a new study uh, uncovered a, quote, psychological signature, end quote, of those who hold extreme and violent ideological beliefs, revealing a combination of unconscious cognition and personality traits that could help identify and treat those who are more likely to act violently. Uh, they say the psychologists were able to map out psychological signatures of those prone to violent conservative extremism and dogmatism, uh, those who are unlikely to believe in evidence and carry a fixed view of the world. Uh, they have a quote here from the psychologist that says, uh, the brains of more dag dogmatic people are slower to process perceptual evidence, but they are more impulsive personality-wise. The mental signature for extremism across the board is a blend of conservative and dogmatic psychologies, the researchers said. Um, so, Father, they talk about wanting to treat those who are vulnerable to political and religious extremism. They talk about uh, those in their communities who can identify uh, those who are prone to, to this extremism and, and helping to treat them. Uh, and our, our viewer says, Father, this certainly, what they're describing here, certainly seems to describe traditional Catholics. Um, so what, what is your thought on this, Father? It, it, it is an attempt to, uh, to position some kind of scientific explanation why people are conservative, why people believe in dogma. Okay? The curious thing is Francis himself would probably endorse that study. Yeah. Francis himself has these same ideas that are expressed there. By the way, where did you have a printout of an article there, mm -hmm. which related that? And I see on the front page there where the article begins, 
is a photograph of Trump supporters, right? That's right, yes. So uh, it's very clear that we're talking about Trump supporters as the dogmatic people who cannot process uh, evidence and, and have a fixed view of the world, right, et cetera, et cetera, and are more prone to violence, okay? They have this psychological signature, right? <laughs> that was discovered, by the way. They just discovered the psychological signature. Um, where, where was this published here? Uh, this was on courthousenewsservice.com. Uh, it was done in, in the wake of the... Courthouse uh, News Service. Who wrote yeah. that article? Um, this was by one John Parton. John Parton. Okay, I'd like to know a little more about him. Yeah. Because he obviously uh, just has swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. And uh, there's a reason why he's, he's uh, publishing this, because he's, he's making this known because, as far as he's concerned, this is, this yeah. is the ticket right here. Yeah. Um, we're talking about psychology. We're talking about psychologists, okay? And... Um, I mean, I, I heard about this, and uh, this, the lead researcher was a woman about 30 years old, okay? She got a doctorate in two, 2016 when she was in her 20s, and, um, and from Cambridge. So she has to be fairly bright, okay? Her name is Leor uh, Zmigrod, Z-M-I-G-R-O-D is the woman's name. And, uh, you know, I mean, she thinks like a 30-year-old psychologist. The fact that she she has a PhD from uh, you know evidently from Cambridge, uh, it rather should not be impressive at all. People with PhDs from Columbia and other radical leftist universities, one should not take that as an endorsement. One should take that as a warning. Okay, that these are radicals. That these are radical leftists. They have an agenda to pursue, and what she wants to do is to try to use her quote unquote science. Uh, to stigmatize all of those who are not leftists and to show, I mean, basically, uh, any, by definition, anybody who's not a leftist who doesn't support the leftist position is automatically a conservative, automatically a Trump supporter, right? And this is part of that Trump derangement syndrome, you know, uh, that we see. And uh, also the attempt to, to cover over their radical leftism with a veneer of science, which is a complete sham and a fraud, you know. Uh, it talks about those who, who cannot uh, process uh, data and, and evidence. Yeah. And we see how leftists are, are, are all based on evidence and, and data and how accurate they are in their interpretation of these things, right? I mean, we see how accurate they are in counting votes in elections, right? <laughs> Man, they're, they're data-driven, that's for sure. Masks and all the rest, right? It's all data-driven. The whole pandemic uh, farce, um, uh, which would be comedy if it weren't tragedy. And um, so um, th this uh, Leor Zmigwarad, by the way, was a, a Gates Foundation, Gates Cambridge Scholar. She had the Gates Cambridge Scholarship from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, I mean, uh, would that possibly suggest some sort of orientation on her, her part, on her way of her thinking, and maybe this uh, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Cambridge scholarship might be um, uh, reserved for those who follow the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation line of thinking, right? Yeah. I think there's a certain indication of that. But this is rather concerning because of what's going on here in the United States, and that is they're trying to say that uh, people who are conservative and notably dogmatic 
traditional Catholics, definitely targeted by this, are dangerous, that they're criminally dangerous. It's almost like they're criminally insane. They're mentally deranged. They need to be re-educated. They must be cured. They have to be treated. That's it. They have to be treated, okay? I'm sure there's a vaccine for this <laughs> in the works right now, right? But they have to be treated. And people need to be able to identify who they are in their neighborhoods, right? These people who are basically uh, tending to be violent and therefore criminally insane uh, because they cannot process evidence the way the leftists can, and they believe in a fixed world. Well, when you process evidence, evidence sort of implies there's a fixed world. Yeah. Uh, but see, their processing evidence says there is no fixed world. What kind of evidence is this? Except for the fact that maybe they're insane, you know? But maybe they're totally out of touch with reality. Maybe, right? Um, but those who are, therefore, in touch with reality are insane and they have to stop it. They have to be made to stop it. They have to be cured. They have to be treated. Otherwise, what if, what if they cannot be successfully treated, Tom? What would you do with someone like that? They have, a pro they have a psychological signature which says they are prone to violence because of their inability to process evidence. The evidence given to them, of course, by the leftists. But they're going to have to be eliminated or locked up. They're going to have to be incapacitated. Something's going to have to be done right, to contain them, or to eliminate them, one or the other. So, um, you know, this is, this is the direction all of this is heading. And um, the fact is that uh, we're just watching it happen before our very eyes, and uh, we're hearing, you know, all these reports about, oh, we're going to turn this thing around, just wait, you know, we got political solutions, oh yeah, just wait, we're going we're gonna to make this turn out right, it's coming soon, you know. And so people are willing to say, okay, okay, I'm willing to wait, I'm willing to wait. I'm like, well, you know, can't wait for the day. And waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and here we are. And um, so um, I think the, the uh, question here is uh, positioning the uh, society to look upon traditional Catholics and anyone who is a conservative bent of mind who believes in objective reality, which they call dogmatism, uh, who believes in objective mor morality, right and wrong, is not only going to be stigmatized, but they're going to be criminalized. And they're going to be treated like criminals. And, uh, but they're going to be treated as sick people who need to be treated. That's where, in the Soviet Union, you saw people taken away and given shock treatments. That's where you saw people taken away to the the uh, psychiatric wards and injected with all kinds of chemicals, right? Mm -hmm. Made guinea pigs. <clears throat> they're, they're actually preparing, they're paving the way for that right now, here in America. Yeah. This will become communist China. My father, I, I thought that perhaps the, the scariest uh, aspect of this would, would be how uh, almost seems like they're, they're encouraging their people within the community to, to, you know, to try and oh, exactly. identify people like this so that, you know... Just like the Soviet Union. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's just it's Stalinism all over again. Yeah. And um, again, they want to create a society with a social score. And um, your social score decides what privileges you're allowed to, to have from the Communist Party. No rights. No one has any rights. All, all one can hope for is to have privileges granted by the Communist Party because you've been a good boy or a good girl.
which means you've supported the Communist Party mm -hmm. and its program. And one of the most important things you can do to support the Communist Party is turn in your neighbor. Right? That shows real loyalty. Yeah. Denounce your neighbor. Denounce your brother, your sister, your parents. Right? Same thing that was going on in the Soviet Union. It's happening before our very eyes with these people right now. Yep. Absolutely. <clears throat> okay. Uh, well, then, another email that I wanted to get to, Father, uh, in regards to the My Catholic Faith book by Bishop Morrow. Uh, something that we've referenced on the on the program frequently. Yeah. Um, this viewer said um, that uh, he says in the credits of the book that he found, uh, it says that the book was, quote, fully revised in Washington, D.C., and that it was published in 1958. He said, these things trip my dubious meter into suggesting I might be better off avoiding such a book, because after all, nothing says holy and authentic Catholicism like made in Washington, D.C., um, he's concerned, Father, that, that the book might have been published after John the Twenty Third took office, um, and he asked Father, with uh, with over a thousand years of, of option, there doesn't seem to be any need to risk anything whatsoever of the new errors that might well be sown into that book. So, uh, with that in mind, Father, could you still recommend this book, My Catholic Faith? I do. Yeah, I've been through the book. I don't see any errors. Yeah. I mean, I have a copy here uh, that I just actually unwrapped. Uh, it's a third edition, it says, copyright 1949, 1952, 1954, by Louis Lavoie, uh, Maro. I think it was originally published in India, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, but then it says republished 1991, 92, 94. And that's, that's a red flag, yeah. you know, by Sangre de Cristo Products Incorporated. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they're based. I don't know anything about them. The question is, what is this text, though, right? Did they republish in 1991, 92, 94, the, the volume that had been published in 1949, 1952, 1954? Is that what is reproduced here? As far as I know, it is. When you look at the artwork here, it is certainly not modernistic artwork. That has not been revised. So the first thing that hits you is, Everything you're looking at as far as the, the uh, artwork is thoroughly traditional mm -hmm. in what it portrays and how it portrays it. Shows no indication of any Novus Ordo influence there. And in my going through this book, I have seen nothing that is um, uh, untoward or, or even suggestive of uh, modernism. Okay. So I realize that the, the writer says, well, gee, there's a risk there. How do I know? And uh, I better avoid it. I say, well, you can, but I haven't. And I've been through the book and I've read it and I don't see anything wrong with it at all. Uh, as far as I can see, it's, it's the true Catholic um, catechism um, that uh, Bishop uh, La Revoir um, produced. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, on the other hand, I would say, well, look, you know, if, if somebody finds something in the book that I haven't noticed that is um, not compatible with Catholicism or which uh, smacks of modernism, I want to know. But I haven't seen anything like that so far. That's why I, I do recommend reading that book. And furthermore, those who I know who have uh, studied the book have accepted it, uh, gone through it, and never voiced to me any any concerns about anything that we've found in it. 
So um, maybe our, our writer says, I haven't been through it, but I looked into this and I found out that it had been revised and just perhaps this, perhaps that, and maybe I'd better avoid it. And I'd say, well, that's fine, but do I still recommend it? Yes. Why? Because I actually have been through the book and it, it, it is thoroughly Catholic. Mm-hmm. And Father, perhaps it's, it's not a bad idea to at least be a little bit cautious because we know that um, that there certainly have been instances where things well, have, have been republished. Well, I, I admire the gentleman or the lady's caution. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm not criticizing the caution, though. But, um, you know, and, and I, would, I would agree with him. I would say, okay, on the start of things, if uh, you found that it had been revised, there's no mention of that here in this book. There's no mention of any 1985 revisions. I think 5080 says. But, uh, uh, oh, 58. There, there are no, there's no mention of any 1958 revisions. Or, that, wa- or Washington, D.C. Or Washington, D.C. That, okay. I can, that I've found in here. Okay. Um, so I, I think the book as reproduced pre-antedates that. But I would say if I found what this gentleman found, if it is a gentleman, not uh, I would want to take a closer look, too. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, I mean, I have a familiarity with the volume, and I can um, testify that everything I've seen in here is thoroughly Catholic. So, yes, I would still recommend it. Okay, good. Well, then another topic, Father, uh, something that's been in the news just a little bit recently with uh, with Francis, I guess there's been... Uh, By the way, I'd like to say, if you do get a copy of the book, if you see a copy, used copy, check the dates. Yeah. If it says revised in Washington, D.C. in 1958, then I would say... You know, be cautious. Yeah. <laughs> be on guard, okay? Um, so, you know, with, with the gentleman's admonition here of uh, what, he's, what he's found in his research, I would say, okay, be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Avoid that. Yeah. Because you can get copies of the book that don't have those revisions, and that's what you want to look for. Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry. To no, that's okay. Um, but but in, in regards to Francis' father, I guess there's there's been some uh, some talk, apparently some... Uh, I don't know, perhaps closed-door meetings. I guess there's not a whole lot of details available, but there's been some some talk of him uh, apparently curtailing or suppressing Simorum Pontificum in at least some some aspect. Um, this is this has been kind of thrown around and talked about. So what is your impression of this, Father Francis, curtailing or even suppressing Simorum Pontificum of Benedict XVI? Well, Francis has not only a uh, an aversion to the traditional Catholic Mass, the traditional Roman rite of Mass. He has a contempt for it. He even wrote of that contempt when he was, when he, he talked, speaking about the time that he was a server, mm-hmm. serving the Mass. What contempt he had for that Mass. Um, how he would deliberately, he and his friends would deliberately mess up the Latin to try to, to try to confuse the priests and throw him off the track. As he's serving Mass. This is the, this is the mentality of this man, okay, even when he was a youngster. Mm-hmm. There's no, no, no respect or reverence for him, clearly, you know, uh, except for radical leftism. <laughs> but uh, in any case, <laughs> the, uh, so he's made no secret of that. And, uh, you know, we're told that Cardinal Sarah um, was maintaining some, or trying to maintain some semblance of conservatism, right, in the liturgy, but... You knew that wasn't going to last. And, and, and of course, Cardinal Sarah's uh, uh, resignation was accepted, you know. And uh, so now uh, Francis has elevated uh, in the Novus Ordo, in the New Order, he's elevated people who are just 
bitter, diehard enemies of the, tra of the traditional Roman liturgy. And they have declared war on it, basically. And the war is erupting now. It's becoming more public. And so uh, documents have, have been passed around in the Vatican. Uh, Francis himself being involved, uh, plans to um, severely curtail or, or even just um, bury uh, Benedict XVI's permission for the 1962 liturgy. 1962 rite of mass that John the 23rd changes um, the, the the changes that are supposedly used by Saint Pius, the Society of Saint Pius X but they are but they're not well it's a, it's a story but anyway um, um, and the same with the fraternity of Saint Peter and all the rest they they all had to uh, kind of burn the incense uh, by accepting the 1962 <laughs> changes as a token of something. Um, in any case, um, but, uh, you know, there are those who are warning that if Francis dares do that, he's going to be starting a civil war in the church. Well, I mean, you look at everything else he's done, and, you know, you wonder, well, if there, there's been no civil war over the things that he's done against the ordinary magisterium of the church, against the blasphemous things he said, um, then I, I just can't imagine, uh, but that, you know, people are going to just basically acquiesce and, you know, and say, well, okay, you're the boss. Um, does he want to do it? Absolutely. I mean, when, when they brought out the new mass, okay, Bonini had been working on it for the years, even before Vatican II, he was already formulating a new liturgy. Um, the modernists have had this in mind, you know, they, they were talking about it in their liturgical circles back in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so, um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when the cardinals <coughs> of Northern Europe <coughs> arrived at Vatican II, they, they were prepared. They, that's that's the first thing they, they chose to tackle, to address, when they got the preparatory shamas discarded. And so the council was basically starting from scratch. And that's the scratch they wanted to start with, the, the idea of a new liturgy. Go to Father Ralph Wilkins', Wilkins book, originally entitled The Rhine Flows into the Tiber, lately published as the, the Inside Story of Vatican II. And you read the account, session by session, of the council, and you read what was brought forward there by the various, uh, you know, cardinals and bishops and what plans they had for the liturgy. And you read there, it's exactly what Francis is doing with the Amazon, the indigenous practices and leading, bringing them into Catholic worship. They had this in mind for decades and decades. Um, it's just that Francis is actually managing to ram them through now. Because, because he can, because he has basically uh, the equivalent of rhinos in the church who are just willing to, to go along with whatever. They whimper about it, but they're not willing to actually oppose it, see, to stop it and to reject it. So anyway, um, so uh, yes, of course Francis wants to do this. This was his goal in the first place. I mean, they protected him against all of the abuses all of the sexual abuse crisis and all that, because they knew they needed this man 
who they trusted would actually finally bring Vatican II to its ultimate conclusion, uh, which involved what they set out to do from the outset, just destroy the traditional mass, drive it from the face of the earth, obliterate it from the minds of the faithful, and replace it entirely with their Novus Ordo. They didn't succeed, clearly. Archbishop had a lot to do with that, right? God bless him. Um, but uh, the idea now is that they will succeed in doing that under Francis. And um, whether or not there will be resistance, I don't know. I mean, after people have been saying all these years, look, no matter what he does, he's the vicar of Christ on earth, right? And we have to accept that. And we have to accept his authority as the vicar of Christ on earth. So if he actually says, no more traditional Latin mass, uh, 1962, 1960, 19-whatever, you know, then I just wonder if there's anything left in these people to um, say, no, our allegiance is to Catholic tradition, which has... Uh, you know, infinitely more authority than you do. You do not have any authority to to ban Catholic tradition because that's the work of the Holy Ghost. Who do you think you are? You think you're the successor of Jesus Christ? Well, <laughs> actually, that's what he thinks. Yes, um, but uh, it's just hard to see them actually uh, uh, managing more than a whimper in this. You know. Now, interestingly enough, the Society of St. Pius X has responded to this talk by saying, well, this doesn't affect us because, as Archbishop Lefebvre pointed out, we Catholics have the right to the traditional Catholic liturgy, and no one has the authority to take it away from us. So all of this display of, you know, uh, being kind of quasi in the good graces of Francis and all the rest, and oh, look, he gave us permission to have weddings in our churches as long as we give the first opportunity to the local Novus Ordo clergy to come and do it. If they don't, we can, and our marriages are recognized. Oh, look, he gave us the the authority to hear confessions and to give absolution. Uh, you know, all of this vaunted idea that, yes, we are now, um, you know, uh, the excommunication was lifted not against Archbishop Lefebvre, but against us, and so, you know, we're actually winking, at least on winking terms, with, you know, the authorities with Rome, you know, basically. So they come out and say, look, no matter what he says, we still have a right to this liturgy and we're going to keep it. And it's not going to affect us at all. And uh, I think, unfortunately, what I, I think what's in the back of their minds, which has been suggested, actually, by other groups like the Fraternity of St. Peter, is that the Society of St. Pius X actually would, would welcome it, uh, that would quash the fraternity of St. Peter, uh, quash the Institute of Christ the King, and so on, uh, because then uh, these groups within the Novus Ordo that have the 1962 Latin Mass, to call it traditional Mass, would have nowhere to go but Pius X, and that Society of St. Pius X itself would benefit from that the sinking of those boats, so to speak. Now, I don't know if that's the thinking there or not. This is this has been voiced by certain people who are 
Fraternity of St. Peter and Institute of Christ the King people who uh, don't see the compassion that they thought they would get and the understanding that they thought they would get from the Society of St. Pius X. And uh, they're, so they're interpreting this to mean that uh, the society would stand to do nothing but, but gain from this. Okay? I don't know. I really don't know. But um, the, the fact, I, I see that the, the, the New World Order, the, uh, the, the, the modernists in Rome, beginning with Francis, um, have tried to, to make a... Uh, out of the using or making available the traditional Latin Mass or what people accept as a traditional Latin Mass in order to keep them on the line. And it might come down to the point where Francis has done so many outrageous things and so many anti-Catholic things, maybe he thinks that he can now quash the remnants of the traditional liturgy within the Novus Ordo and most of the people just go along with it. Anyway, they won't like it, maybe they'll grumble about it, but in fact, he's gotten away with so much, and they've gone along with so much, it's got not going to amount to anything anymore. They, he has nothing more to gain by continuing the charade, <clears throat> and so he might decide, let's just end it here. Um, if he did that, I mean, he came out, might come out full bore against the Society of St. Pius X, in which case... Um, Maybe the Society of St. Pius X would have to throw off all pretense of uh, being in the good graces of Francis and uh, go back to Archbishop Lefebvre's way of thinking back in the 1980s when he was very, very strong and very powerful in his, in his denunciation of the Novus Ordo. Let's face it, the Society of St. Pius X has held back. They've held back rather than uh, um, just really unmask the Novus Ordo for what it is, the synthesis of all heresies. They just haven't spoken out with, with the power of Archbishop Lefebvre. And I can't help but think that they're handicapped by their desire to somehow still appear to be in the good graces of the Vatican. That's all I can figure. I know. Um, uh, now maybe, maybe the, the, the mask would be off. At that point, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, in any case, um, it's important for people to know, especially those who are trying to practice the traditional Catholic faith within the Novus Ordo Church, that when the New Order came out, there was a draconian effort made to annihilate the traditional Mass to limit it as far as they could to old priests and nursing homes and to make it disappear from the face of the earth. And that lasted for about 20 years, from about 1968 to 1988. And it was only then, I mean, after Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated some bishops, right? Um, and they knew that the Society of St. Pius X would not die with him, that they began to think, we, we now we need to start making some concessions because if we don't, we're going to lose this. <clears throat> and that's when they allowed the Ecclesia Dei Commission, and that's when they allowed the use of the 1962 Latin Mass, you know, under limited circumstances. It was expanded by Benedict XVI. But the fact is, for 20 years, I mean, all of their efforts were bent on just simply annihilating the traditional Mass. That's what they wanted to do from the very beginning. So when Francis uh, 
is reputed to be, you know, loading the uh, the blunderbuss to go out and, and shoot down Samarum Pontificum, and as far as he can, I mean, to uh, make the traditional mass extinct within his realm uh, <laughs> to the extent that he can. This is not a surprise. This is this is what they set out to do from the very beginning. They just are looking for to be for Francis to be the one to actually accomplish it. Wow. So, in any case. Father, any, uh, anything else that you'd like to get into tonight? Well, uh, we're in uh, June, the month of the Sacred Heart, of course, and that's where we go. We go to our Lord's Sacred Heart. That's the source of all. That's the font of living waters, you know. And uh, that's the um, where our Lord nourishes the human soul, as I mentioned uh, recently in a, in a sermon. You know, to, to live in this world physically, we need to have air food and water, right? Sustain life. Well, in a sense, that reflects what is necessary for the soul to live. Uh, we need to breathe. And the breath of the soul really is the Holy Ghost. Spiritus, right? The spirit, the respiration of the soul, the life of grace in the soul. That is the life of the soul, the presence of the Holy Ghost and sanctifying grace. The soul breathes by grace. And uh, so we also have the nourishment that our Lord uh, came to give us. We have, of course, the living waters, uh, a, a baptism itself, right? And we have the, uh, the nourishment of the Holy Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament, that our Lord has given us, to, the, the living bread that has come down from heaven. It's bread that is not only living, but the point is it's living with a life that it can give. It gives life. And um, that life that it gives is um, you know the divine life, the divine life that breathes divine life into the human soul. So there we find there we find the sacred heart of Jesus right there. We find that our Lord has actually given His heart to us. We marvel, we marvel uh, at the apparitions of our Lord showing Saint Margaret Mary His own heart. I mean, our Lord in this apparition actually took His heart in his hand, and held it out before the eyes of St. Margaret Mary, and said to her, Behold the heart that has so loved men, mankind, and is rewarded with so much forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt. Right? Our Lord even went so far as to exchange hearts with her. That's quite beautiful, really, when you think about it. Right? It's very beautiful. Well, we marvel at this taking place in 1681, 82, 83 to St. Margaret Mary in a convent far, far away. But we realize, you know, when we receive Holy Communion, that's exactly what we receive. That's what our Lord does. He, he, he takes his heart and he actually gives it to us in this way, in the Blessed Sacrament. And what he did with St. Margaret Mary is very symbolic, but what he does... But he gives us Holy Communion is not just symbolism. It is real. He's actually placing his heart next to our hearts. He's placing his heart within us. We do appreciate the significance of that. I mean, it's so spectacular. It's so wonderful that it's hard to imagine. Because it's hard to imagine, one might find it's kind of hard to, not, not hard to believe, but hard to appreciate it. But that's where we have to overcome the limitations of human imagination by faith and faith that is enlightened by prayer, so that our Lord can impress upon us the significance of this fact, 
We can say it's true without appreciating the truth of it, right? The significance of it. The important thing is not only believing it's true, the important thing is to appreciate the significance of it. And there's the source of, there's, there's the subject of meditation, a lot of meditation. So I suggest that during this month of June, we meditate upon that very fact, right? That our Lord has left, in a sense, left his heart among us here, living, right? Living heart in our tabernacles, and he wants to come to us in Holy Communion. Um, because he's not impressed by our tabernacles of stone, our tabernacles of brass or steel or whatever. He's what he what he really created to be the Tez tabernacle eternally or immortally is your soul and mine. That's the tabernacle he wants. That's where he wants to be. So uh, let's give him that. Absolutely. <laughs> give him, give him. Yep. Father, thanks for being here tonight. Appreciate your time and everything that you do. Oh, you're welcome, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, you consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.